Hey guys, I'm standing outside the Dominique Ansel Bakery in Victoria in London. We're just about to go in and interview the inventor of Cronuts himself. So we're standing in here and I can see a glass case full of amazing looking pastries. I'm hungry. This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this, our special 50th edition, Cronuts, the viral sensation. Thin caramelized shell on the outside. It's crunchy, chewy, cold, crispy. It's beautiful. With lead baker, Dominique Ansel. And it was when the cronut went viral and she had suggested to trademark the cronut. And at the time, I thought it was, it was just pastry. So she told me that Tifa was not going to protect my creation. Probably an industrial will come and bully, bully us and prevent us from using the walls and the product that we created, which is the cronut. Hello and welcome to City AM's Unregulated Podcast. This week, it's our 50th edition and... Because it's special, we're here at the Dominique Ansel Bakery to meet the man behind the legendary Cronut. As we've hit that lovely round number of 50 episodes, we're recording live just after the lunchtime rush here at the bakery. So Dominique, it's a real pleasure to meet you. I'm very excited. For the uninitiated, can you tell us what a Cronut is? Sure. So the Cronut is one of my many creations. It's a hybrid, as people describe it, between a croissant and a donut. It has the, uh, the, the shape of a donut, flaky, tender, like crispy layer of a croissant, and it's filled with cream, which changes the flavor every month, then a glaze and a sugar, like a donut. So I've been lucky enough to sample one of these things, and they are so sugary and so delicious. Um, how did they come about? What, what was your thought process in creating them? So the process was actually fairly simple. Like uh, one of my, my team members had asked me to come up with uh, uh, something fun and new for uh, Mother's Day a few years back. Okay. And they had mentioned maybe to do a, uh, a donut. And of course, in French, I have no recipe for donuts. <laughs> and I, I, I thought to myself that I will uh, create something new and, and fun. And this is how the, the corner came about. So as you mentioned, you've come up with a lot of kind of viral sensations. There is the chocolate chip cookie shot, which we just sampled, and it is amazing. We've had the magic souffle, the frozen s'more. Do you come up with these things because you're trying to come up with something a bit viral, or do they just pop out of your head? What goes viral, I don't decide, actually. Like, I'll, as I always say, like my, my customers decide what, what goes viral or not. Uh, what, I, what I do, I do what I love, which is creating, creating new pastry. Uh, new pastries and, and have a chance to reach out to people, like reaching out to them emotionally and culturally as well, uh, so they can find some something that they they, they might recognize, they might remember, but it looks and tastes different. How do they go down with the kind of French patisserie establishment? Do they like it? French people, at first, they're not really impressed, but after <laughs> they eat it, they love it. <laughs> I think, you know... If, France is a pretty uh, conservative country. Uh, we like our tradition. We love what we know and we know what we love. Uh, changes is not something that is always welcome. But you know what? The last past years has changed a lot. There's a lot of young, new, talented chefs and pastry chefs in, in a city in, in, in Paris, for, in, for instance, that really try to break the, 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 the habits of, of eating and, and come up with new ideas, new flavors of, of pastries or food that people might be interested about. 
I mean, you launched your bakery in New York in 2011. The cronut went wild in, was it 2013? 2013, that's right. You suddenly were having to deal with queues around the block. You were dealing with, you know, people coming in just to take photos. What what was that like for you? Well, it was overwhelming. <laughs> that's a word. At the time, uh, you know, I opened the bakery uh, with only four people, two in the kitchen and two barista. And when the corner happened, I still only had four people and I had hundreds and hundreds of people lining, lining up. Our, our kitchen is super, super tiny, like the size of like a small office with one desk. Uh, we were trying to keep up with production. Everyone was walking around the clock and we couldn't keep up with production. So at this moment, I decided to to go one step at a time and, and to do what, what was the most important for me, to keep the control and the quality of our product and to limit ourselves to what we could do. And also to keep on pushing for creativity and, and coming up with new ideas. After the cronut, we created the frozen s'mores, which is an ice cream version of a s'mores. It's a vanilla ice cream coated with a chocolate wafer inside a honey marshmallow. It's served on a branch that's been smoked with apple wood and it's torched to order. So you have this thin caramelized shell on the outside. It's crunchy, chewy, cold, crispy. It's beautiful it sounds beautiful so you you've got this tiny bakery and you suddenly got queues around the block how do you deal with queues like that that how do you deal with that level of popularity well it was it was challenging in the beginning because i was you know trying to work really hard in the kitchen keeping up with the production but i realized very early on that uh, the most important was to take care of our customers not only when they were inside the shop but also while they were waiting outside so now we have a lot of traditions. Before people even enter the bakery, we serve them fresh-baked madeleines, hot chocolates. We have hand warmers for the winter. We have oh. umbrellas for when it rains. I hand out my, myself personally. I have beautiful roses for Valentine's Day to all of our guests in line. Uh, I think it's important you know, to stay in touch and, and not forgetting that our customers are here waiting for us. And this is the moment we should be servicing them while they're waiting and not only when they're inside the shop. That's quite lovely. I quite love that. And it, it feels to me like customers don't mind queuing at all. Customers don't mind queuing uh, so long as you, so long that you take care of them, so, so long that you remember that they're here, they don't mind queuing. Um, if, they, you know, if they wait, they, they wait for good food, they wait for good customer service and uh, you cannot disappoint them. Do you feel like social media has played a part in your success? Like Instagram, cronuts are very Instagrammable. I think social media is uh, is important nowadays. It's very important for any businesses. It's a, it's a tool and it's a tool that should be used carefully. Social media is important, but it's not everything. Uh, we cannot forget about the quality of the food, the customer service, the experience that you give, uh, promoting uh, what you do and having it actually a chance to express yourself and your creativity through social media is important, but it's not everything. I mean, I, I have actually heard it said that, you know, chefs are now creating food that looks beautiful and they're kind of neglecting the flavor side of things. I've, I've seen this too. I've seen people focusing a lot on presentation, but the taste is number one. The taste is everything. You can make the most beautiful dish ever if it doesn't taste good. People will not remember. People will not talk about it. You have been very protective over the intellectual property of the cronut. Why is that? Well, I think that at first, um, my lawyer was actually coming to the bakery, and, and she's a friend, to, uh, to trademark the name of the bakery, Dominican Sun Bakery. 
And it was when the cornet went viral and she had suggested to trademark the cornet. At the time, I thought it was was really not necessary and it was just pastry. But she insisted and she explained to me that the food industry is one of the most trademarked in the world. If you go to supermarket, you see lines and lines of like cereals and like products that are uh, commercialized and that are branded and all those brands are protected. So she told me that if I was not going to protect my creation, that probably an industrial will come and bully, bully us and prevent us from using the words and the product that we created, which is the Cornet. So it was actually uh, the right move. It was not necessarily obvious for me, but after I was explained, it was obvious that, you know, a lot of people, after I, I put in my application, I've tried to uh, steal the trademark and I've tried to, to take it away from me. And that's, that was a very important move that um, I tell all the, the small businesses and all the, the, the people like that are creative to protect what they do and uh, not to, uh, to have people uh, bully them. So there were a lot, of, I mean, over here, I think one of the supermarkets created something called a docent, which is like a, a cronut, but the other way around. Have you pursued companies like that? I don't personally handle anything that's legal. I have lawyers to take care of this, but uh, the, the cronut is the cronut is it's very special. It's this unique creation, and it has nothing to do with anything else that's out there. I think not tricking people is very important and not confuse them with uh, what we sell. That's why we uh, protect our trademark. Oh, hey. <laughs> Stop laughing. <laughs> Trying to record something. They're going to do this again. Oh, hey. We're at a bakery for our special 50th episode. So please go and rate us on iTunes or tweet about how jealous you are that I'm currently eating a cronut and it tastes good. I also, on a more serious note, thought I'd thank you, our entrepreneurial audience who are thirsty for professional development. You guys have been coming back every week for nearly a year and listening to us. Please keep supporting the show by listening and telling your friends about us. Thank you from me, Emma Hazlitt with two T's. talk a bit about your story because um you grew up in france and then you ended up in new york how did you get there that's a very long story so i, I grew up in a small uh, family in uh in the north of paris my dad used to work in a factory i was uh, the last the last of four children and used to live with my with my cousins my grandma so a big family a uh, very small uh very tiny uh factory worker salary and we didn't have much growing up and very early on, when I was uh, 16, barely 16, I had to find a job to support the family. I ended up in the kitchen uh, working really, really hard, um, 16, 18 hours a day. And at the time, I had no choice. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I um, found myself in the kitchen and uh, I started learning on how to love what I was doing. Uh, when I was uh, 19, I left left the country to go to do my military service in French Guiana, came back, bought a small car, drove to Paris because it was a dream of mine. I drove with, uh, to Paris with my uh, very tiny, like humble, broken car, and I was dropping off resumes everywhere. I, uh, I ended up uh, getting a job at Fauchon in Paris, 
where I started as a pastry cook. Which is ultra trendy, isn't it? Yes, and it's one of the best, most prestigious uh, pastry shop in Paris. I uh, ended up working there for eight years, where I was the corporate pastry chef when I left. And in 2006, Daniel Boulou uh, called me from New York, asked me if I, if I wanted to come to New York. Uh, of course, New York, who says no to New York? Exactly. So I came to New York to work for Daniel. I worked for Daniel for close to uh, six years. And in 2011, I opened my own shop on Smith Street. What I find quite interesting is that when you were at Fauchon, you had experience of helping it expand into Russia and Egypt and Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And now you're expanding your own business. Is it any different? It's a lot different. It's a lot different because it's my, my own. It's a lot different because it's, it's a different uh, way of expanding. Uh, with Fauchon, I was asked to replicate the exact same concept, exact same product layout. Everything was a copy-paste of what it was in, in France, which works for them. It uh, works very well because it's, uh, it's a different brand. And I wanted to do something else. I wanted a business that was more catered to the locals, that was more understanding of the culture of the product. And in every of the shop that we open internationally, we really uh, dive very deep into the culture. We research local ingredients, traditions, and we incorporate it into the, the, the pastries that we do. So in London, you've got the Welsh rabbit. We have the Welsh rabbit croissant in London. We have a Banoffee paella that is baked in a paella pan, uh, influenced by the, the Spanish uh, cuisine in here in London. We have uh, a dosa millefeuille. It looks like a dosa. It's made with a, a thin puff pastry, uh, but it's a millefeuille that you have to break apart yourself. It's uh, it's really an understanding of uh, the food culture in London that is very eclectic. So right now you have um, shops in London, New York, and Tokyo. That's right. How how is it different in Tokyo? In Tokyo, it's a lot different. I mean, just culturally, the shop is uh, the shop is is beautiful. Ninety five percent of our customers are locals, so we uh, we have to adjust, adapt, and keep on changing. Uh, we're actually opening a second location in Tokyo in uh, in a few weeks. And uh, this time around, like we are, are going to come up with a whole new menu with uh, creative pastry that are dedicated to the Japanese culture. I'm also excited about uh, this year because I will be opening uh, my first shop in Los Angeles. And that's so, just a, a restaurant, isn't it? It's going to be a restaurant and a bakery. It's going to be both. So it's, uh, it's, it's a way for me to go back to what I've learned in my very first years of working in the kitchen, which is cooking. And I love cooking. I always loved cooking. And I'm excited to work on the menu that uh, will show people what I can do in the kitchen as well. So are you going to be running that kitchen? I'm going to be, um, have, I will have a chef there, but I will, I'll be developing the menu. With that. Quite nerve wracking. It's busy. <laughs> you know, when, when you first opened your bakery in New York, you know, New York is a town full of bagels. How did you convince New Yorkers to eat delicate French pastries? It was not easy to convince anyone of anything in New York. But before I even opened the shop, people were telling me not to open a French bakery, that many had tried, that it will fail, that French bakeries are too obnoxious, that I should be doing cupcakes and, and call it a day. But I, I refused to listen to anyone at the time. I had my vision for, for a nice bakery. It was a place with happiness, a place with that good music, the smell of coffee, beautiful desserts, plenty of seats for people to feel free to 
just stay for a cup of coffee or come have desserts with friends and stay an extended period of time. A place where you feel like home, it's comfortable, where you want to come back and because you feel good about it and you want to come back with friends, with family, and you want to come back because the food is good and it's creative and it changes. Do you feel like you had to adapt to fit in with New York or do you feel like you managed to persuade New York to adapt to fit in with you? That's a very interesting question. I think that New York is one of the most flexible cities you'll ever see. People are from anywhere and from everywhere. There's no judgment. There are, you have a lot of freedom to express yourself. Of course, you have to be fair. You have to be fair with pricing. You have to be fair with your offering. You have to serve quality food. You have to give good customer service. It all goes together, but there's plenty of room for creativity. Do you have any plans to launch in Paris? Paris, I, I, I love Paris. I lived in Paris for close to eight years and I, I was still in love with Paris as well as, as much as I, as I am with New York. I uh, always want to do something there. I have no plan yet, but eventually in the future. Okay, so we're, we're nearly at time now, but um, one question I did have was about, you. I've read that you're very strict about bad moods and swearing in the kitchen. That's so right. I wanted to ask, you know, that's not very traditional chef behavior. So I wanted to ask how you keep your team happy. How I keep my team happy? Mm-hmm. So as you say, like, you know, f- swaying and losing the temper and screaming is forbidden any of my kitchen from New York to London to I mean, Tokyo. I've worked in a kitchen before and it was mainly swearing. Yes. There were some words in between. So it doesn't happen any of my kitchen. Uh, how I keep my, keep my team happy, I think it's important to first be disciplined. Be disciplined with everything we do, everything we say we're going to do and to follow up on on everything to uh, keep the the new generation excited to keep on sharing with them and and to be there for them before they you know they even do a mistake to be like teaching them guiding them to be like following them and making sure that they they are successful and uh, I, I believe in this new generation of chefs that we are that is uh, different different because we we are more aware we are we are sharing, we are giving, and we're giving everything we have. There's no nothing held back. There's nothing hidden. Uh, it's, it's a place where you should trust your team and be trusted from your team. And if somebody does just burn themselves on a pan and utter a swear word, what happens? Nothing <laughs> happens in that case. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, definitely suggested not to swear in the kitchen. You know, it sounds you're running three separate bakeries. You're about to open a restaurant in L.A. It's a stressful life. How do you stay happy? It is a stressful life. I think it's uh, it's important to have balances in life. Uh, There are things that are really making me unhappy. There are things that, you know, I deal with. There are things that I let go. and, And it's important to have balances. You cannot be frustrated about everything and in any any time any any places you have to understand that people do mistakes you have to talk talk through it uh, decide move forward make sure that it doesn't happen again They're, it's stressful it's it's challenging but i love it dominique Gansal, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you thank you very much for having us thank you Thanks 
to the Dominique Ansar Bakery for hosting us and podcast producer Jamie Wareham. This has been City AM Unregulated's 50th podcast. Hang about for this week's Twitter conversation, but also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, all with RSS, all with your favourite podcast app. Remember, email advertising at audioboom.com if you're a brand that wants to connect with our ABC One millennial audience. And to this week's Twitter conversation... Tweet me at Emma Hazlett, two T's, with that viral recipe you've seen this week that I should be making to win the office lunchtime bounce. See you next week. City AM Unregulated is an audio boom production.